We are heading into the trials of Jesus now, okay, as in the actual legal trials of Jesus. So, let's kick off, shall we? Verse 66 from Luke 22. When day came, the assembly of the elders of the people gathered together, both chief priests and scribes, and they led him, that's Jesus, away to their council. And they said, if you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask you, you will not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. So they all said, are you the Son of God then? And he said to them, you say that I am. Then they said, what further testimony do we need? We have heard it ourselves from his own lips. So we hit the end of the first one of Jesus' trials, where actually this is the religious leaders of the day trying him. And I don't know about you, but there's not an awful lot of trial going on. There's, there's some questions. Jesus doesn't seem to defend himself in any way. In fact, uh, the, the only things he says make them go, well, we're done now, aren't we? You've, you've just said exactly what we wanted to try you for, which is that you think you're the son of God. Now, I, I, I want to just pick up because he doesn't actually say that at any point. And so those of you that, that can remember the Daniel series that we did might pick up on that son of man phrase that he keeps using. And they might see that that, that phrase made them go, well, hang on, are you saying then that you're the son of God? So that phrase, son of man, has a power, right? That phrase is, is back to a, a prophecy hundreds of years before from Daniel about one with the image of the Son of Man, who looks like the Son of Man, approaching what Daniel described as the Ancient of Days, God. Okay. And this Son of Man, one with the appearance of a Son of Man, was given authority and a kingdom that was never going to come to an end, which is an odd thing to be pointing to at the point of being tried and and. Jesus here knows where this trial's leading, right? None of this is going to be a surprise to Jesus where we're going. Let's move on now to the next trial. The whole company of them arose and brought him before Pilate. As they began to accuse him, saying, We found this man misleading our nation and forbidding us to give tribute to Caesar. I mean, that's a lie. He, a few chapters ago, he said the exact opposite, in fact, when he was asked whether people should pay taxes. But let's keep going. And saying that he himself is Christ, a king. A phrase that they're hoping might convince Pilate, who is the uh, Roman authority there, the one in charge. They're hoping that, that this type of language might make Pilate more inclined to listen to them when they say he should die. Because to the Romans, the idea that someone would proclaim themselves as king and more important or equal to Caesar was 
worthy of death. So, saying that he himself is Christ, a king. And Pilate asked him, and, and you can see here, Pilate actually sort of seeing through the rubbish that they're talking about to the key point, right? You know, he, he's not interested about the giving tribute to Caesar or saying um, that he's a Christ. It's a, the king part that he's interested in. So Pilate said to him, are you the king of the Jews? And he, this Jesus, answered him, you have said so, similar to the last thing that he said in the last trial. Then Pilate said to the chief priests and the crowds, I find no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people teaching throughout all Judea, from Galilee, even to this place. So Pilate starts off looking like he might actually have some integrity here. There's no guilt in this man. He's, he's seen the truth about Jesus. And this, I just want us to, to pick up on this because this is important. This is the, the first time where the proclamation has been made. There is no guilt in this man. But they were urgent, saying, he stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea. I mean, that doesn't sound like a crime worthy of death, teaching, does it? Some of you that are still at school might disagree. But, but for most of us, the idea of someone teaching us doesn't deserve death, right? And now that brief moment where Pilate looked like he might have some integrity... <laughs> becomes a, a clearer reality when he hears the word Galilee and he goes, ah. You see, Pilate is scared here, actually. Pilate has got these religious leaders, these important people telling him to do something that he knows is completely wrong, yet he's scared that he's going to get probably a riot on his hands if he doesn't do what they say. I say probably a riot. He's already had some riots happen when he was a bit uh, off to the religious leaders. So he's slightly nervous of them, right? And so he thinks, aha, I've got to get out. And you see, he says, when Pilate heard this, he asked whether the man was a Galilean. He's gone, aha, I can see that I can appear to do what these religious leaders want, but not get in trouble for condemning an innocent man to death. I'm going to send him to someone else. So when he learned that, he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction. He sent him over to Herod. Now, I, I'm trying to whistle through here, okay, these trials. I don't want to linger in these, so you have to forgive me for kind of just going quickly as, as we go, but I, I'm just pulling a few little bits out. So, so Pilate here is saying, I'm, I, I'm going to send you somewhere else. Okay, I, I'm going to effectively not uh, pass judgment at this point. I'm going to let someone else fall into the trap of having to pass judgment for this situation. Now, we'll find out later, Herod and Pilate weren't the best of friends okay, at this point. So 
you can probably guess that Pilate's being a little bit political here, and he's trying to make Herod's life hard. There's nothing in that move about going, there's an innocent man in front of me that needs to be let go, okay? Needs to be released. That's not what's going on here. So Herod, when Herod saw Jesus, he was very glad. Ah, have we got someone that follows Jesus here? For he had long desired to see him because he had heard about him. And he was hoping to see some sign done by him. Ah, okay. So there is no, there's no sense of faith. There's no sense of I want to, to hear what this man has to say because he has the answers of the universe. This is, this is Herod just wanting a magician, a showman, right? He just wants to see Jesus perform some kind of miracle for him. Jesus doesn't do one, though. So he questioned him at some length, but he made no answer. The chief priests and the scribes stood by, vehemently accusing him, and Herod with his soldiers treated him with contempt and mocked him. Then arraying him in splendid clothing, he sent him back to Pilate. And Herod and Pilate became friends that day. For this, before this, they had been at enmity with each other. Pilate then called together the chief priests and the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man as one who was misleading the people. And after examining him before you, Behold, I did not find this man guilty of any of your charges against him. Neither did Herod, for he sent him back to us. Look, nothing deserving death has been done to him. So again, we have this proclamation of Jesus' innocence. He's found nothing wrong. And then he shows that there's this political sense. I will therefore punish and release him, which sounds a bit harsh considering he said he's innocent, right? But uh, th that's not that unusual for the day. It's, it's, it's the equivalent of a caution these days, right? Uh, a light beating and get on your way, don't do it again type thing is what that's talking about, okay? So Jesus has been very clearly announced as being not guilty, He's done nothing deserving of death. And this is by, this is by pretty corrupt people, right? The, the first trial before the council was, was a bit of a sham, okay? They, they didn't really dig in. They didn't look at any evidence that, that might be there to back up. Jesus saying that he is the son of man, that he is, is this Messiah, this Christ, they didn't actually go, what have you done to back that up in any way? They just went, right, we're going to kill you. And then Pilate found him innocent, completely innocent, but still hasn't released him. And then Herod it doesn't really sound like he even gave him a trial, just as the other Gospels point out in more detail, just 
some torture, really. And I think it's interesting, actually, on that point. Luke is, isn't laboring on the, the pain that Jesus has gone through by this point. He's going to hint at it, but he's not, he's not actually gone into the depth of description that some of the other Gospels talk about, about how injured Jesus was at this point. And so I think he's trying to pull something else out for us, right? This isn't a Jesus has been tortured and tortured and tortured. This is something about Jesus' uh, trials that we need to pick up, that he was tried, he was honest with why he was being tried. He told the very first people, yeah, I am the Messiah, I am the Christ, he said. He's, he's almost leading them to the point where they have to kill him. And yet, everyone after that is saying he's not, he's not guilty. He's not guilty. He's not guilty. And then we come to what is another trial. This time in front of not a, ju- a, a, a judge, sorry, but in front of the people. Those who had actually been praising him as he came into Jerusalem, right? declaring him as king. That's what we're remembering on this Palm Sunday. The, the, they, they proclaimed him as king. And now the people are going to try him. Interestingly, I think it's that the religious leaders that we started with had been scared up to now, all through this journey, to do anything to Jesus because the people believed that he was who he said he was. The people had him as some kind of special prophet. Let's see what they say of him now. But they all cried out together, away with this man and released to us Barabbas, a man who had been thrown into prison for an insurrection started in the city and for murder. So instead of releasing Jesus, they want him to release a man who actually caused an insurrection, who actually stirred up people against the Romans. Pilate addressed them once more, desiring to release Jesus. But they kept shouting, crucify, crucify him. A third time he said to them, why? What evil has he done? I have found no guilt deserving death. I will therefore punish and release him. But they were urgent, demanding with loud cries that he should be crucified, and their voices prevailed. So Pilate decided that their demand should be granted, and he released the man who had been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder for whom they asked. But he delivered Jesus over to their will. These people declared Jesus guilty despite any evidence to back that up. These people declared him worthy of death despite every judge so far 
proclaiming him innocent. I want to just bring us right back to what Jesus said. So, I don't know if you noticed how little Jesus has said so far. But what he did say was that from now on, the Son of Man shall be seated at the right hand of the power of God. He's saying he will be seated at the right hand of God. That seat is the judgment seat, right? We are all, every one of these people that has tried him, going to come face to face with Jesus as judge one day. And yet, this same man, Jesus, has just subjected himself. He willingly came here. He willingly came to this point has subjected himself to their judgment. It's curious, right? The only one that we've heard about so far who actually has both the knowledge and the authority to judge correctly is the one being judged. And actually, we, we might turn to it in a moment, but, but in Isaiah, when Isaiah prophesies about this hundreds of years before, Isaiah declares that it is God's will, the Lord's will, that this happens. Owen picked up on, on, on that actually we are, we are here because of the sovereignty of God deeming that it should happen. So Jesus has come willingly to these trials. Let's read on and, and see what happens next. As they led him away, they seized one Simon of Cyrene who was coming in from the country and laid on him the cross to carry it behind Jesus. That's the, the hint that I was talking about of how hurt and damaged Jesus was at this point physically. Most people would carry their own cross, right? He was in too much pain and too weak from the, the trials that he's been through and the punishments he's already been uh, subjected to, to carry it. And there followed him a great multitude of the people and of women who were mourning and lamenting for him. But turning to them, Jesus said, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming when they will say, Blessed are the barren and the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. It would be better to be dead, basically. For if they do these things when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Now, I don't want to linger too long on this, but I do want to just pick up that this Jesus, this one who's been subjected to such 
uh, an ordeal already at the point of utter agony to the point that he can't even carry his own cross. He turns and says, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. Even at this point, Jesus' heart is for other people. I'm trying to paint a picture here, and I think it's the one that Luke's trying to get at. He has been through these courts. He, he subjected himself to it, and at this point is still showing love for others. That should start to tell us why he subjected himself to these things. Moving on, two others who were criminals were led away to be put to death with him. And when they came to the place that is called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on his right and one on his left. And Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. And he's, he's specifically talking about this next group of people. And, and they cast lots to divide his garments. So he's talking about those who are casting lots at that point. He's saying, Father, Forgive them, they know not what they do. Those casting lots were the Roman guards, right? The, the, the ones that had led him to this point. And again, I just want to pick out, he's hung on a cross at this point. What is, is one of the most, if not the most, agonizing ways to die invented by the Romans. And at this point, he's praying on behalf of others. Even at this point, he's praying, Father. Now, I don't know about you, but, but if you think back to what uh, Jesus said in the garden as he prayed, you know, God, if it's your will, Father, if it's your will, Please take this cup from me, if it's possible. Take this cup from me, sorry. But, but not my will, but yours be done. That same father is the one that's led him to come here. So he knows at this point he is here because God the Father has sent him. And yet he still says, Father. That same word that he starts the Lord's Prayer with, that same, that same phrase, that prayer of intimacy, of love to his God. So even at that point, he's not turning away from Father God. The people stood by, watching, but the rulers scoffed at him, saying, he saved others, let him save himself. If he is the Christ of God, his chosen one, the soldiers also mocked him, coming up and offering him sour wine and saying, if you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was also an inscription over him, this is the king of the Jews. All of this is just mocking, just make, taking the mick out of him because of what he claimed about himself. And this is God, right? This is Jesus. 
the son being mocked by the very ones he created. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. Declaring, please, get me off of here. But the other rebuked him, saying, do you not fear God? since you are under the same sentence of condemnation, and we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now this is, I want to linger for a moment this is, this is an amazing moment. Jesus is, is hung beside these two criminals. One of them suddenly realizes what he's done. One of them humbly acknowledges that he should be there, but that Jesus should not. One of them acknowledges that he is guilty, but Jesus is not. And all he asks of Jesus is to remember him when he comes into his kingdom. Even that phrase is acknowledging that Jesus is a king. And the truly remarkable thing here is that Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, this is a, a moment for us to stop and think. If Jesus says that to a guilty man, how much more does he say to us? No more. <laughs> he says the same to us. There's a, a, a phrase written underneath a, a uh, tomb in Rome. It's, it's Copernicus's tomb, the guy that, that, put the, that helped to establish that the sun is the centre of our universe, not the earth. Right? Uh, he was a, a devout Catholic man. And it says uh, along the lines of, grace like St. Paul I don't ask for. Mercy like St. Peter I don't ask for. Grace, like shame to the thief, that I dare ask for. I actually think he's missed the point. <laughs> because I don't think that God shows any more grace 
to Peter or to Paul or to this thief? What does he promise the thief? That the thief will be with him in paradise. That day. It's not even like there's a delay, right? He comes into an eternity with Christ that day. What does he say to Paul or to Peter, the two great leaders of the early church? The same thing. What does he say to you today? If you respond like that criminal, I deserve punishment. You do not. And I want you to be Lord. I want you to be king. What does he say to you? The same thing. There's not any difference between any of us. None of us, even if we had declared the gospel or the good news of Christ to as many people as Paul had or as Peter had, not one of us would be able to come to Jesus based on that. I talked about Jesus being sat on that judgment throne, right, that judgment seat. When we get there, not one of us is going to be able to say, I did a pretty good job, right? Not even Paul, not even Peter. Not this thief. But we can all say, we come not in our own uh, strength, but in yours. Let's have a look at, at why we can do that. The next part starts to make this clear. It was now about the sixth hour. That's, that's midday, actually, in, in this time. There was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour, while the sun's light failed. So we're in the middle of the day, somewhere much nearer the equator than here, right? And the light of the sun fails for three hours. Now, there's lots of different theories about why that might happen. And I don't really want to get too into much of it, okay? But what I think that we're seeing here is that creation itself is acknowledging something truly stupendous is happening. And I think Luke is flagging it to us because of the, the, the concept of darkness. Okay? And so as we read it and we think, what's darkness all about? It should lead us to think of, of evil. And I want us to think about what evil is happening there. Jesus is on this cross, dying. Why? 
What's actually happening there? Well, Isaiah again talks about a separation. He talks about our iniquities, our, our sins uh, separating us from God. He says that they cause God to turn his face from us, to not hear us. And yet he also says that God has laid our iniquities on him. He says, this is hundreds of years before, this is about Jesus at this point. He says, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Interestingly, it goes on to say that like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that, that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. You know, we've just read the, the trials that he went through. Where he didn't even really give a defense, right? Jesus, at this point, is taking on every sin and iniquity that we have ever committed or that anyone ever has committed. A great separation has taken place. The separation that we deserve, that our iniquities cause between us and God, Jesus is taking on our behalf at this point. And so what happens? Well... The next thing that happens is the curtain of the temple is ripped in two. This moment of darkness, this moment of separation leads to something truly incredible. The curtain, and this curtain was a thick curtain. This didn't happen, you know, the wind blows and the curtain tears or anything. This is, this is a significant event. The curtain of the temple is torn in two. Now that curtain, it is pretty clear, is the curtain that separates the rest of the temple from the most holy of holies, the place where God's presence dwelt on earth at that time. This, this place that one man could enter once a year, the great high priest could go in once a year. He was the only one allowed through this curtain. And even at that point, he had to conduct lots of ceremony and make himself pure and clean to be able to go in there because he couldn't come into the presence of God without being prepared. That curtain is torn in two. 
suddenly there is no barrier to the presence of God. In fact, I'm going to just grab a... All right. Jesus, his death, that separation that he suffered has led to a moment where something that signified our separation from God was torn in two. Then Jesus, calling out with a loud voice, said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Even at this point, showing his trust in God. And having said this, he breathed his last. Now when the centurion saw what had taken place, he praised God, saying, certainly this man was innocent, as if those proclamations of innocence at the beginning weren't enough. Luke underlines it again. Jesus was innocent. And all the crowds that had assembled for the spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, returned home beating their breasts, lamenting that he had died. And all his acquaintances and the woman who had followed him from Galilee stood at a distance watching these things. Now there was a man named Joseph from the Jewish town of Arimathea. He was a member of the council, a good and righteous man who had not consented to their decision and action and he was looking for the kingdom of God. This man went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus and then he took it down and wrapped it in a linen shroud and laid him in a tomb cut in the stone where no one had yet been laid. It was the day of preparation and the Sabbath was beginning. I'm going to whistle through that. that. That is purely saying they rushed him into a grave, okay? As they couldn't prepare his body properly, they rushed him in. The woman who had come with him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments, preparing for the moment that they could properly prepare the body. And on the Sabbath... They rested according to the commandment. Now, we have the great privilege of looking back on this with hindsight. These followers of Jesus didn't. They had just seen their hero die. Kind of like in those moments of a great film where your hero is fighting with the great enemy, the, 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 vi the villain of the film, and they fall out of sight whilst in combat. <laughs> they, they're unseen, and you know that only one of them is going to emerge. And at this point, it looks like it's the villain, right? Their hero seems to be dead, as, as you see those films when the villain comes out looking like he's victorious. We have the privilege to look back on it and see that just like in most good films, <laughs> the villain stumbles and falls. 
and we see our hero come back out. As we come to this point, we don't have to look back and think, God, how could you die? We can look back and say, our God subjected himself to trials, to pain, to suffering on a cross. And all through it all showed nothing but love to those around him and doing it to him. He subjected himself to separation from his father. All to take on our sin and iniquities onto himself. We are made clean by him. We are healed by these wounds. If you trust in Jesus as your saviour, then just like that criminal that was hung next to him, you can have an assurance of your eternal destiny with Christ. I simply ask, have you put your trust in him? Whether you're a Christian or not, I ask that question. As, as I talked about Paul and Peter, do you feel like you bring something to the table here? Because you don't. This moment in history is the moment that makes you clean. There's no other moment. There's nothing else that you have done. As we come back to him, as he sat on that judgment throne, we can either say that we need to pay the price for our sins or thank him that he has taken them on himself and has paid that price on our behalf. And I think there's only one apt way to respond to that kind of love. And so we're going to sing again. We're going to respond to Jesus out of thankfulness for what he's done for us. For what he subjected himself to on our behalf. As As I talked about the iniquities being placed on him. Those were yours. Those were mine. And so we're going to worship him now, and then Paul's going to come and lead us in communion, which, like I say, feels like the only apt way to respond to what we've just read.